on the podcast today. I am very excited to have uh, Janet Kabobel-Grant, who is president of Books and Such Literary Management, and Wendy Lawton, who is vice president of Books and Such. And I'm going to offer a brief summary uh, introduction uh, because it would take the entire podcast to go through their accomplishments. Um, Janet began Books and Such Literary Agency in 1996, which means you're celebrating the 25th anniversary of the agency, which is amazing. Uh, both Janet and Wendy are authors, Janet primarily a nonfiction author, and Wendy primarily a young adult middle grade fiction author. Janet's worked in publishing, and Wendy's an artist who owned an award-winning doll-making company for many years. They've co-authored a book titled The Inside Scoop, Two Agents Dish on Getting Published, which is one of the books I most often recommend to writers. It's excellent, offers wonderful information. And I saw this on your website when I was doing a little research this week. Books and Such represents 270 clients and the agent's combined knowledge of the publishing industry spans more than 100 years. <laughs> wow, we sound so ancient. <laughs> well, there are six, of, six agents, so there are six of you, so no, not at all. <laughs> But I loved that breadth of experience that you bring to uh, your positions as literary agents and offer to writers. Janet, give me a little, give our listeners a little bit of history on uh, Books and Such and what led you to move from publishing into agenting, specifically that piece of the publishing industry. Well, thanks, first of all, for having us, Ginny. We both feel really privileged that you invited us, so we're very appreciative. Uh, so Books and Such started, as many things do in our lives, uh, due to the um, emergency situation I was facing of the publishing company I was working for moving from California to Colorado, which I knew I did not want to do. Uh, and so I had to ask myself, what am I going to do with, with myself? <laughs> and since my publisher is, in a sense, divorcing me. <laughs> and it occurred to me that I had been working in the publishing industry for uh, several decades. And I really understood many different aspects of it, including that for a while, I was actually the production manager for a publishing company, which was a, a, a a position I was not suited for, let me just say it that way, uh, but I had to oversee the production schedule of all of the projects that the publisher was producing and also um, relate to all of the um, printing companies and had to actually make significant decisions about who the publisher was going to print with and made trips to printing companies and all sorts of things that yeah, I was completely untrained to do, but what the heck, I launched out and somehow managed to swim my way to the edge of the shore. <laughs> but at any rate, uh, I decided that because I had a really broad breadth of experience in publishing and knew many of the editors in the various publishing houses, that it would make sense for me to start a literary agency. Now, this was a pretty um, 
unusual sort of decision to make because there are only at that point two other literary agencies that specialized in Christian publishing. Wow. Yes. So it was not a standard sort of direction that someone in publishing would go. But um, I sort of had the sense that my skill set would be a good match for being a literary agent. And so um, thanks to my husband's support, uh, I was able to launch into that venture and start books and such. Uh, so we were the third um, how, uh, literary agency that specialized in Christian publishing. And I was the first woman to start a literary agency. Wow. And uh, so sort of record setting in a number of ways. And um, yeah. yeah. And uh, there came a time when I had so many clients, I started thinking I really need to bring someone else on board with me because this is more than I can handle. And uh, I was about to hire someone I really didn't know, but, uh, and, and sort of had some hesitancies about it. Like, I hope this is going to be a good decision. And I was talking to one of my good friends about this sort of crucial point in the agency's history. And she said, well, surely there's someone you know that you would want to join you in the agency and you wouldn't have to be sort of like picking someone in the dark. And she said, uh, uh, who might that be? And without hesitancy, my response was Wendy Lawton. Uh -huh. uh, which surprised me completely, but it was just so obvious that Wendy and I were a great fit. Um, she was already a client of mine, and we loved working together, and we roomed together at the Mount Hermon Christian Writers Conference and taught sessions together, and we just had a fantastic synergy. So that as soon as I hung up from talking to my friend, I called Wendy and basically presented her with the possibility of joining me, and without hesitation, Wendy said yes. That's incredible. That's neat. So Wendy, I'll ask you the same question. What led you to accept Janet's offer? What led you into agenting? Well, because of the fact that Janet was my agent, I had seen the very best in an agent. And Janet um, is a phenomenal mentor. And you can ask any of our agents that. Mm -hmm. And she does it very systematically. Um, she still has phone calls with three, four of our agents, three of our agents, uh, every single week, an hour long phone call going over things. And um, this is, this is uh, one of the things that, that made me decide. Um, I often joke that I still had my business at that time. And for the first couple of years, I was kind of juggling both things. And Janet happened to get me on a day that was payroll. And so if you've owned your own business, you know that payroll day is the day you sweat. And I thought, I'd love to do something else. And so, but also just because agenting is truly a wonderful job if you like people. And in my other job, I had kind of been a center, you know, done all the things, done signings and, you know, to speaking where a lot of people would show up. I was featured at Disney World, all that kind of stuff. And it was time for me to stand back and be a servant. And that's what I am now, is I am a mm -hmm. servant to my clients. And I love that. I've learned so much more being a servant than being a front man. Wow. I love that perspective. So I'm going to throw out some questions, and I'll let you decide which of you responds. Um, what does it take 
to be a good agent. Uh, personality traits, characteristics. You mentioned a couple, Wendy. What does it take? You I go would ahead, say Wendy. that the most important thing is is having that gut is what we call mm. it. Being able to look at projects and see <clears throat> whether it will work or not in this market. Uh, we see so many good, good projects, mm. but there is something special that takes it above and makes it uh, a viable product, project and product for this market. And so I would say one of the, one of the most important things is being able to recognize really great potential books. Great. I think one of the characteristics that would surprise people that they wouldn't necessarily think of is that you have to be extremely organized. You are keeping track of every single one of your client's careers, and that is a lot of detailed work. Who did you send proposals to? How did they respond? When did you send them? Uh, what contracts uh, does this client have that are in play? When is the uh, client uh, ready to send to, to have a new contract and what direction are we going to go? Uh, have the payments been made on time? Uh, did we receive the royalty statements? What did the royalty statements look like? Do we see any errors in them? Uh, what kind of follow-up might we need to do regarding the royalty statements? And on and on. And that's for each client. And all of us have uh, somewhere between 30 to 50 clients. So we're keeping track of a lot of details, uh, not only for every client, but for uh, the conglomerate of clients that we have. And as you said, we have more than 270 clients at this point. And so our office is keeping track and the agents are keeping track of a lot of details and not everyone, including people who decide to become agents, realize how incredibly important it is to be the kind of person who can uh, keep track of details and not feel overwhelmed by all of that or indifferent to it because uh, not everyone, for example, who is an editor is necessarily acclimated to doing that kind of intense detail work. And not only that, but one of the things that's um, very important to realize is that every um, agency is different. And at Books and Such, one of the things that we do that's, I think, very different is we stay with the, the project and the client all the way through. There are some agents who are salespeople and they want to sell the book and then that's, they've done their work and there they go. With our agency, we have worked with our clients. We do regular webinars. We've worked with our clients to train them in certain things. And I mean, just this week, I had a comment from an editor who said, I so appreciate books and such because you do such a good job of equipping your authors to partner with us. You give them tools for their toolbox. And I thought that was such a wonderful compliment because that's exactly what we want to do. That is so valuable. Uh, one of the questions I was going to ask is how books and such literary management and the management changed from agency, I believe, at some point along the way. 
uh, how that differs from other agencies. So that partially answers the question. Maybe that totally answers the question. But in addition to that, Janet, you posted an excellent blog post yesterday on the agency's blog about the differing cultures uh, in publishing companies and agencies. So what's the culture of books and such? I would say that we're a very collegial core uh, agency uh, and that we create intentionally create a very family atmosphere between the agents and with our clients and uh, we connect keep we want to keep our clients connected with each other and to know each other and to support each other we're not about competition we're about collaboration and that is truly unusual in a literary agency Many agencies want to keep their clients separate, whereas our goal is to bring our clients together. Mm -hmm. And so um, one of our hallmarks is that we periodically have a retreat in which we bring our clients together and um, they form friendships that could never happen uh, simply online or because they appreciate each other's work. But we also have regular webinars that we uh, use to bring our clients together and to help them to um, advance their careers. Uh, and uh, for example, we recently, this year, we had a webinar on how to use Canva. And then we built off of that um, by having uh, a webinar on how to create uh, an eye-catching newsletter. And Wendy's the one who taught that. And um, we're about to have uh, an, a webinar on how to build your newsletter list. So we're very strategically providing uh, key information to our clients in areas in which we see publishers are saying, please bring us client, your clients who have significant newsletter lists. And so we're focusing on how to help our clients build those newsletter lists. And so the synergy between our clients and how they support each other, uh, for example, one of my clients recently lost her mother and her book, uh, she had a new book releasing a few days after her mother died. And so I put out a call to all of our clients to support her by promoting her book on her release week. And they came forward in just such a stellar way and, and uh, promoted her book in their newsletters and on the social media. And I provided them memes so that they could be promoting her book. But when you're a family, those are the kinds of things that you do. Yes. Well, I have worked with writers for the last seven or so years. And one of the struggles that I hear most often as a writing coach is the daunting task, often daunting to writers, of building their platforms, of building those email lists. And for that reason, shameless self-promotion here, uh, I've created a 31-day platform building challenge that I'm offering writers during the month of July. And it's my passion and one of my focuses is building community with writers for the exact reason that you are talking about, the ability to support one another, to partner together, to promote each other. 
It's so, so valuable and so important. And it's important to our, I believe, sustaining our careers as writers to have that support. And so the fact that you offer that to your clients is incredible. What a gift. That's yay. <laughs> it makes it so much easier when your editor asks you for endorsements. Yeah. If you have a group of 270 friends who are willing to jump in and give a hand. And so for us, it has been the magic of books and such. That's neat. And, and writing is such a lonely business. Yes. Uh, and we are very aware of that, how very alone a writer feels. And so our desire is to create a community where that writer can come and say, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to do this, or I'm going to change the, the platform I'm sending my newsletter out on, any suggestions for me? And so just to share those kinds of practical tips, as well as to share the heartache of, for example, losing your mother and yes. having a book releasing almost simultaneously um, is, is very important to each writer. And by the way, Jenny, I'd love to have you send me a link to more information about what you're doing in July, because I would love to share that with our clients. It sounds really fantastic. Thank yes. you. I will do that. So, so that leads into the topic of platform. Are there target numbers that say a nonfiction writer that you look for or that they can be aiming for? Um, and for fiction, what are platform requirements these days? <laughs> Wendy's laughing. <laughs> I, I should let Janet answer this because I'm known as the platform denier. And uh, I, I, I long for the day when publishers will understand platform better. Mm. Realize that it is not about numbers. It's about engagement. And platform was named because it was a speaker's platform and they wanted to know how many pe people you spoke to in a year. How many hands did you shake? How many names did you get on your readers list? Um, that's real platform. Um, social media numbers are, you can buy them. I mean, seriously. They're, they're so bogus, but now I'll let Janet talk about what the editors like to see. Well, first of all, let me say, I think all of us uh, writers and agents feel the agony of the kinds of requirements that publishers make of writers over numbers. Um, and as agents, we see over and over again that uh, big numbers do not necessarily translate to big sales. Um, I understand that publishers are trying to find some numbers to look at to make a decision about whether someone is going to be able to sell copies of books. Um, and so these are easy numbers to access, and it is the way that publishers make their decisions about publishing. And so it's something, a, a reality we have to live with, whether we agree with it or not. Uh, we have to provide authors with numbers. And sadly, the numbers need to be in the tens of thousands. Um, if you can, if you have 6,000 total number of people you can show you have connections with through a social media platform and your newsletter, 
that sadly is just not impressive to publishers. Um, if you start to say 15,000, they'll go, okay, lukewarm. If you say 50,000, they'll say, all right, we're starting to see that this person really does have connections. And so the numbers are pretty staggering. Um, I will say that at times um, there is an idea or a special niche audience that a nonfiction author can reach um, and show that they have the ability to reach that can get that person a contract. So it's not like 50,000 or go home. <laughs> there are always exceptions to every rule. And I will say that fortunately with fiction, publishers tend not to have the same stringent requirements. There are some publishers who actually have come to realize that um, there is no real way a novelist can build an audience until they have a book. Mm -hmm. And so what they're really looking for is for an author who has connected with other authors, studied how that author uh, relates to uh, her readers, um, and also an, a novelist who has gotten, dipped her toes into the social media and shows that she knows how to use it. Because if they're starting with someone who has been um, in his ivory uh, castle for 10 years slaving away at his novel and it's truly a fantastic novel, but he has totally ignored being online. That is someone that they would have to teach how to be engaged in social media. Uh, and that would be a very steep hill to ask a publisher to climb. So I would say most publishers want um, novelists who at least show that they have this, built the skill set of connecting with people online. It seems also for fiction authors, as a fiction author, uh, important not to, it's important to build that audience even before publication, because if that first book doesn't sell well, a second contract is unlikely. Is that not true? It depends on the publisher. I mean, it is a hard hill to climb, but we have some wonderful publishers out there who understand that. And they may give grace for two or three books, knowing that it does take time to build because we know that fiction builds from word of mouth. Yes. We talk about the books we've loved and other people get them and word of mouth is so important. And so, yeah, but um, yeah, the, the thing that, that I tell my clients when they are novelists is that they need to find a niche that they own. Mm -hmm. In other words, I, I represent Julie Clausen. Mm -hmm. Julie was the first one to write English Regency fiction in mm -hmm. the CBA market. And so we have called her the gold standard <laughs> of Regency inspirational. That she owns that. Everybody else who comes along came because of her. She is the and so each person, I, what I try to do is guide my clients into a unique place so that they own it. And then they begin to build that audience, that platform. Great. That's great. What do each of you look for in an author that you're considering representing? 
What's your ideal author? It's a combination of the author and the book. Um, the author has got to be a professional because we're professionals and we work, as Janet said, collegially. We work together as a partnership. And so they also have to be a wonderful writer. There are so many excellent writers out there who may never get published just because there are not enough slots. So it's a given that they have to be an amazing author. They also have to have, especially for a first book, an amazing idea um, because it's a big risk. This is a business as well as an art. They have to have an amazing idea that's easy to sell because when you think about the concept that they're bringing, we, they tell the concept to us, we fall in love with it. We help them craft their proposal. And then we have to present it to the editor. Then we leave, let it go. And the editor has to present it to the editorial team, the other editors. And then they take it to the pub committee where they have the bean counters and the salespeople and everybody there. Then it has to go from the salespeople to the store. Well, you can see how hard it is. If you've got a concept that's a little hard to talk about, um, how in the world do you get that all the way through all those filters to the end to sell it to the store? And of course, then the store has to sell it to the reader. So it's the, the more concrete, the more high concept, the idea, the better for us. So we look for someone who can come up with a high concept and who is just a wonderful, uh, appropriate professional. And I would add to that, that unfortunately we do look at the person's platform uh, for all of the reasons we've just said. Um, sometimes we fall in love with a project and we just take a risk in representing someone because we so believe in the person and the project, but we carefully explain to that individual that the that we are taking a risk that the possibilities are kind of slim that we're going to be able to find a publishing house for them but we want to give it our best efforts um, and so that's just part of sadly being realistic about what we need to have in a client and i would say we also look for clients that we want to work with um, there are some people uh, who contact us and um, they have a really great idea and we see that they have the ability to reach the audience for the book, but we just, as an individual, might not have a good synergy with that person and uh, we choose not to represent them because we're trying to choose people that we can bring into our community. And so uh, who's going to fit in our community? Um, usually uh, a drama queen is not going to be a good fit for us because we drama queens don't tend to want to be part of a community. They want the spotlight on them. Uh, so we're very sensitive to who's going to be a good fit in our community as well. And also the, the aspect of, of a vibrant faith is important to us mm -hmm. because when we take people to the publishers, to the editors. Um, we are 
we are putting our imprimatur on that person. And so we want to make sure that they believe in the Bible and that they have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Very, very important. And we don't move away from that. Okay, we're getting short on time. One other question. Uh, what are some of the reasons, because I'm not sure writers fully understand this, new writers, what are some of the reasons publishing houses turn down a project? Probably the main reason is not enough slots for it. Mm. Um, you know, publishing houses are businesses and they decide exactly how many projects they're going to have in a certain line in a certain year and um, they're filled up. And so I would think that that's possibly the biggest reason. And I would say platform really is a maker or breaker. Uh, sorry to keep coming back to that, but it, it truly is so significant to publishers, uh, regardless what we think about it. Uh, and agents are salespeople. And so when we look at a, an author, when we look at a project, we have to ask ourselves the most basic of questions. Do I think that I can sell this project to a publisher? And if, if regardless how much we love it, if we are not confident or pretty sure that we can sell the project, then we're probably not the appropriate person to be representing it. And, and that's sort of the bottom line for us. And the truth about agents is we don't get paid for the hours and hours of work we do before a project gets, gets sold. Um, we only make money when the author makes money. No respectable agent ever takes a dollar from their authors. The money goes the other way. And so if we have carried an author for five years and done all the work on say three different proposals, you're talking about hundreds of hours of work and um, to which of course we don't get paid. And that's part of what, what um, our commitment is. That makes so much sense. And that's uh, important information for writers to understand that uh, number one, that you are doing a lot of work, a lot of pre-work before uh, a project sells and you are not asking for money. And if an agent is asking for money, an author needs to be very wary, I would imagine. Absolutely. <laughs> so, Absolutely. Yes, that's... Or another way of saying it, they need to run the other way. Yes. <laughs> Most of, most of those who've requested money in the past have ended up in jail. So yeah. <laughs> well, that's good. <laughs> so what do you each represent? What types of manuscripts are you looking for? Well, I represent both nonfiction and fiction. I have a special love for fiction just because that's what I love to read and that's what I have written. Um, but I represent nonfiction as well. And, um, you know, just looking for that great book with the right person to write it. In other words, if, if it's a book about dieting, it better be um, somebody who is a registered dietitian who writes it. Or if it's a book about mental illness, then it needs to be a psychologist or a psychiatrist who's writing it. So that's, that's the type of thing. And in fiction, um, fiction is very hard to place, I'll be honest these days. I mean, we have just a handful of serious publishers doing it um, right now. And um, I would say 
some of the things that I would love to see. I mean, I keep saying I'd love to see somebody do some psychological suspense, kind of yes. like Louise, Louise Penny does. Um, you know, it's it's a very complex thing, and of course, it probably wouldn't be a debut author who could do it. But um, I think that that would be very interesting. I'm now spending a lot of time reading about uh, uh, Christianity coming to Europe in the sixth century, um, loving that, and also medieval fiction. I love um, uh, medieval fiction, like right around the time of the bubonic plague and pneumonic plague and that type of thing. Very interesting period. And I don't know that we really have much of it in the Christian market. So those are those are areas in CBA that are pretty active. But and that's one of the ways that uh, writers can see what's happening. We're always a little behind the ABA market. And so if they see something that's breaking out in ABA that really needs a faith element and it could come to the CBA. Interesting. I uh, represent uh, adult fiction and nonfiction, as well as some children's book authors. Um, as Wendy was saying, the fiction market is very, very tight. So we're extremely selective regarding fiction. And also, uh, I represent just a few children's authors because that also is a very small market in Christian publishing. Um, so very selective in those venues. Um, I find myself often drawn to memoir types of books or narrative nonfiction. Um, I love working with someone who is uh, trying to tell their story, which is a very compelling uh, incident in their lives or a very compelling trajectory of their life uh, and in I just find myself personally very drawn to those and uh, for example uh, next week one of my clients Todd Tillman who was the winner of The Voice last year yes. <laughs> uh, is one of my clients and his book is releasing next year and uh, he wrote it with his wife Brooke and I brought Trisha Goyer uh, to um, be with them and to help them to tell their story of how he came to be on The Voice and how they viewed um, the whole process of being on The Voice and, and um, just very fascinating kind of story. So uh, those types of stories are of considerable interest to me. For memoir, um, if you don't have a name like Todd Tillman that's almost immediately recognizable, at least to anyone who watches The Voice. Yes. This story, what, what do you look for? Well, I look for a story that the reader has some connections to, uh, that they would recognize themselves in some way in that particular story. Um, I tend not to be likely to represent someone who suffered from abuse. Uh, simply because there are many, many, many of those stories. And while I understand they can be a tremendous encouragement to other people who have been abused, um, they're actually not very likely to get a, a publisher or a significant readership simply because of the number of books that are already available um, on that topic. So I'm looking for something that's really unique and yet relatable, which kind of can sound contradictory, but uh, that's sort of what I'm looking for. Some, a story that people can relate to, but is also unusual. 
Okay, honestly, my final question, and then I'll let you go. <laughs> because a lot of my audience uh, is made up of fiction writers. I work with both nonfiction and fiction writers, but uh, I, I know personally that the fiction market has tightened in recent years. Is that cyclical? Is there a reason for it? Well, I think the reason is usually based on sales. And so, um, you know, we have lost so many wonderful CBA independent stores. And those were the people who pushed fiction. They would take their customer down the fiction aisle and say, oh, I just finished this book, you're going to love it. Or they'd have little shelf talkers there saying, you know, Mary Jo found this to be totally, you know, interesting, likable, whatever. Um, so that's one of the reasons that I think is sales, you know, sales are not growing. We, we kind of say that even is the new up for sales. And so um, we just have to get more people reading in CBA. And I think that one of the problems is um, there are some prejudices against CBA fiction that were built 30 years ago. You know, the very first authors who wrote CBA fiction were just getting our toes wet in the genre. And uh, yeah, and so they may not be as sophisticated as the fiction we're seeing now. Mm -hmm. And I am telling you, CBA fiction is sophisticated and um, liter literarily intriguing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I mean, we've got to find those readers and each author who comes in with a new novel has to do their part to bring readers to, yes. to our circle. And as we begin to grow this industry, the publishers will grow just as fast. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I think what Wendy is saying is very true. And I would also say part of the challenge for anyone writing a novel, whether in the general market or in the Christian market at this point, is the uh, just almost incomprehensible growth of self-publishing. Uh, and the majority of the people who self-publish write fiction. Mm -hmm. And so uh, to go on Amazon and to look for a new novel to read is to be blasted with possibilities and uh, how to find the book that you're going to love reading is a huge challenge for readers today. And, and so that's part of the reason that our market is not as vigorous as it used to be, um, because it's several million books are self-published every year, which when you think about that, several million. Yeah, mind-boggling. Yeah, you just can't even take it in. And so it's, it's a huge competitive market, not just for Christian books, but for books in general. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you both so much. Uh, this is such valuable information for writers and uh, this feels like a masterclass in uh, publishing. So thank you for offering that. I really appreciate it. Uh, Wendy, you have a book releasing soon, I believe? Uh, in November, I believe. November, great. That's exciting. So, and it's neat that you're able to continue writing and uh, doing what you're doing. And so I know your readers will be looking forward to another book. So 
thank you very much. And uh, I will link to uh, books and such literary management in the episode notes and uh, all of the important information there. And uh, to, to the book that you collaborated on that I so often recommend that will also be linked there. So uh, readers and writers can find you and uh, your submission guidelines and all of that. So thank you for your time. Thank you so much for having us. We're, we're really honored. Yes, yes.